Okay, uh, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Father, again, we come to you because of your grace that draws us to you, that overcomes the effect of sin in our lives. And we're thankful that you have so worked in history to bring about salvation. And we ask tonight that the Holy Spirit sent to to us as part of the church from the Lord in Han Hai, that that Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the content of his own truths. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in this section of material, we're going over church history. And the reason we're going over church history like this is because in the New Testament, it talks about the Holy Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance. And what I'm trying to do over the few weeks, and we only, uh, by the way, next week we will not meet. We will not meet. So, folks that showed up last time, we'll not meet. <laughs> um, I have to go out of town and I can't get back in time for the class. So, I'll have to flush the class next week, but then we'll finish. We'll, we'll, we'll meet the next week. But anyway, what we're trying to do is show that the Holy Spirit has been very active over the centuries of the church and is building still the body of Christ. And he began in the early centuries by laying the foundation as to authority, and the authority is revelation. It is not reason. It is revelation. It is not reason because reason by itself is like um, if you have played with a can calculator. Um, reason is a calculator. And it's no better than what you put into the thing. So I always have to laugh, having been trained in theoretical mathematics, I always have to laugh when I hear usually liberal arts students uh, laud the benefits and glories of reason. When all reason is, is a computer calculating machine. And you have to plug in things to make reason work. Well, what do you suppose you're plugging into it? You're plugging in ideas that make the reason work. And the ideas carry with them beliefs and presuppositions and assumptions. So reason isn't itself a tool. Particularly, it isn't a neutral tool. Reason can be used any way you want. Um, it's, it's a tool of sorting, it's a tool of calculating, but it's not going to insulate you from assumptions and presuppositions. You have to have an authority over and above reason, and that authority is revelation. And that revelation takes the form of canonical scripture. So, revelation actually is the canon. Now, that particular awareness that happened in church history is a whole doctrine. It's the doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of the Bible. And I'm going to just review for a few minutes here on the front end about uh, the sequence that we've watched develop down through church history. Then we're going to go to the framework that we've been working on for six or seven years here, and I want to go back to where we learned these doctrines 
so that in your mind's eye you'll be able to go back to the scriptures that are involved, the history that were involved, as well as seeing where all this logically fits together. There's a logical development of doctrine through church history. So after the issue of authority and the rise of the canon, the canon, not necessarily uh, did the church immediately uh, catch the implication of having a completed canon. For a long time, the church insisted on apostolic succession. If you've come out of a liturgical church, you've probably heard that term, apostolic succession. And the early church used apostolic succession they gravitated to those men who were taught by those men who were taught by the apostles. But if you think about it, it wasn't apostolic succession in the sense because somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. It's rather they believed in apostolic succession for the same reason you and I would. would. If, if we had three people here and one of them had a chance to talk to Paul and the other two didn't, who would we talk to? We'd talk to the guy who talked to Paul. But it's not because that guy is smarter, better, or anything else. It's just that we think that, well, he can tell us the content of what Paul spoke of. So apostolic succession in early church history did happen, and it was taught. But it was taught out of the frame of reference that that was the way to get to apostolic teaching. It was always in the background, the apostolic teaching, that's the issue. Now, of course, that became institutionalized, apostolic succession, and that became part of a structure, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the Episcopalian and Anglican churches believe in apostolic succession also, have a little problem with Henry VIII, but nevertheless, that's the way it goes. And because somebody has been ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody who was ordained back, 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 all the way to the apostles, doesn't make that person orthodox. What makes the person orthodox is that he's following the apostolic teaching, not that somebody laid empty hands on an empty head. So authority and canon are very important. That's the basis of everything else that goes on in church history. I, I keep riding this hobby horse here for a reason. You're going to meet people in your Christian experience that when they hear you go to a Bible church, that they make it out like you're a freak. You know, who goes to Bible churches? And, and it puts you on the defensive the first few times you get hit with this. Like, you know, maybe, gee, you know, when I have spiritual B.O., what's the problem here? Because I go to a Bible church. Well... The problem is these people don't realize their own church history. What is the first and greatest uh, advance that was made in church history? Establishing the Bible. That's the canon of Scripture. Of course we go to a Bible church. Where else do you get apostolic teaching but going back to the Bible? So we don't have to be apologetic for it. This is not something that uh, 1932 some Elmer Gantry fundamentalist thought about. This is part and parcel of the structure of church history. And the founders of all the denominations believed in biblical authority. Luther did, founder of the Lutheran Church. John Wesley did. I mean, some of the liberal Methodists would gag if they ever had John Wesley preach. Uh, people in the Presbyterian Church. I mean, Calvin would faint if he walked into some of the liberal Presbyterian churches. 
So, the point is that there's a lot more that binds Orthodox Christians together in these basic things and separates. So, that was the big key, the authority and the canon. Then we said, came the next thing, which was the Trinity and who the Lord Jesus Christ was. Church had to think about that one, had to deal with that one. So the next time, some again, somebody comes to your front door and hands you the literature of the Watchtower Society or something and tells you that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God and, and, and makes the assertion, the silly assertion, that the Trinity was somehow uh, imported from the Greeks into church history. They just don't know what they're talking about. People don't sit up because they've got nothing else to do in a back room and think of something like the Trinity. It's a difficult thing. And it was arrived at only because they tried this path and that didn't work. They tried another description and that didn't work. They tried this one, this one, this one, and finally they settled on the Trinity. Lots of people gave a lot of thought to this because they had a lot of scripture. So what happens is some of these amateur cultists come and they quote verses out of the New Testament that speak of Jesus' humanity. And they say, see, the Bible teaches Jesus' humanity. But they conveniently avoid the verses that speak of his deity. And it's the same old stuff. All they're doing, actually, is repeating the heresies of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. It's all over again. And I've been strongly tempted around some of the people to, to say... You know, you ought to take a time machine and go back. You belong in the 3rd or 4th century when this was being debated. It's all over now. Nobody, you know, nobody in Orthodox doubts the Trinity and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what are you raising this issue for? This was dealt with centuries ago. Go back and read your church history. Well, then, that's the, the foundational period. And it's important that these two areas of truth were dealt with. Now... In your Christian life, and in my Christian life, if the same Holy Spirit teaches us that has historically taught the church, you might look to see if his lesson plan with you personally isn't the same as his lesson plan for the church corporately. Namely, that if you think about it, the truths that the Holy Spirit will tend to emphasize in the sequence, proper sequence, I mean, he varies. Each one of our lives is totally different than the other person. Not totally different, but different. We are all varieties of one species, uh, spiritually speaking. So the Holy Spirit deals with each of us as individuals. But I'm talking about the general sweep of things. That the Holy Spirit will root you into the authority of Scripture. And if you're weak here, if whoever led you to the Lord didn't make this issue clear, you, you're on wobbly legs with all the rest of this. Because you're going to be, if you don't have this down, and you have doubts, you're going to be wobbly on these areas. You're not going to be firm on who God is, what He's done for you, if you're still floating around trying to figure out whether the Bible is the Word of God or not. So that, that there is a natural tendency to follow this thing. Now last time, we met in the little room, and we moved on from the foundational era to the Middle Ages. And the Holy Spirit was working then. So after the Lord Jesus Christ, that doctrine was cleaned up, clarified, Trinity. Then the next debate was the work 
of the cross. And that was debated down through the Middle Ages. And we said on uh, page 94, uh, well, we, let's go back again, because we're going to go back to part 5 a moment. On page 93, there's a little note that goes back to part 5. So, uh, I know some of you weren't here in previous years, but let me, let me show you something here. Something to understand about how God, uh, the, the logic and the structure of, of divine revelation. We, we followed this framework over the years. And those of you who have been here you know, over and over, you've seen this thing until you can see it in your nightmares. Um, the first part of the scriptures, Genesis 1 to 11, based on four key events. Yeah, there's other events, but I'm just picking the four key events, that's all. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And if in your mind's eye, you will learn the content, the truth content of Scripture, and link it in your mind's eye with historic events, such that when you associate a doctrine, for example, with creation, in your men mental attitude, in your imagination, you can almost pretend you were there watching creation happen. Read Genesis until it stimulates your imagination so you can do that. And when you do that, you're going to think about who God is, who, what man is, and nature. You'll think of those as created man and nature, as created entities. You will learn that God is the creator, and then there's the creature, that which is created. So, just mentally remembering God spoke, and it came to pass. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be animals, let there be plants, let there be man, and there were. And that's his command. He spoke, and it stood fast. So, there, if you will just do that simple exercise, you will automatically be rooted in the creator-creature distinction. So, so, that's the doctrine of God. And it's contingent and linked to the event of creation. Because it's the event of creation that reveals the creator-creature distinction. If you're blurry on that, the rest of this stuff is going to get greasy and slippery. So that's why you have to go back to these basics. So we go back to these basic events and we, we're going to pick up these doctrines so that when we come to church history and we see how the Holy Spirit's teaching here, 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 we'll be aware of what He's teaching. Alright, so we learned about the doctrine of God, man, and nature from the event of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and the, that whole chapter. Powerful chapters. Very simple. A child can learn this. But as you feed on it, more and more the truth gets deeper and deeper. Then we said the second issue was the fall. A profound thing that leads to a proper understanding of evil and suffering. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world right now. And it's on television every night. And there's a lot of people out there that say, boy, if there's a God, he ought to apologize for making this mess. But if you've re read Genesis 3, and you should once or twice a month, to get perspective, you know automatically that something's wrong with that statement. Who, what was the state of creation after God finished his work on the seventh day? Was it a mess? No, it wasn't a mess. Who screwed it up? Man screwed it up. And it wasn't the, the, the little African bugs or anything that screwed it up. 
It wasn't the animals. It wasn't the lions. It wasn't some... We can't blame something else. We can blame Mama and Daddy. Adam and Eve. Because they, there, and we, corporately with them, as we'll see tonight, we corporately joined in, and they were our representative, and we participated in it, and we reaped the results. God said, the day that you sin, the day that you sin, you're going to die. And the word die means a lot of things. It encompasses physical death, encompasses spiritual death, encompasses suffering, encompasses sorrow, encompasses all these other things. And the other diagram that we've gone over and over, and we can't go over um, this one too much, because this evil problem is one that constantly comes up, and it's like the Christians are the ones that are screwed up. It's the other way around. If you're not a Christian, you're screwed up. Let's look at that diagram again. Think about it. In the worldview of the Christian, God is good forever, from eternity to eternity. It has never changed. The introduction of evil hasn't changed his character. God is as good now as he was before creation. We come down, however, because in the Christian worldview, there's a creator and a creation. Two levels of reality, not one. That's elementary. That is Genesis 1.1. And once we see that there's a creator-creature distinction and that we believe in two levels of being, not one, now we look at creation and we say, oh, look at this. There's creation and there's the fall. And there's an interruption between the two. There's a gap between creation and fall. And in that gap, the creation was very good. So it's not true that this death scene, this suffering scene that we are emerged in now, it's not true that that's inherent to creation. That is an add-on that came afterward. That is a corruption of the original. So that's why that story of Genesis 1-2 versus Genesis 3, Genesis 1-2 right there, Genesis 3 right there, there's a reason for that gap. Because it's vital to prove that you can have physical creation without death, you can have physical creation without corruption. Then we have a period from the fall to the judgment when both good and evil coexist in an uneasy mix, which is where we live today. And that goes on and on until the judgment comes. And when judgment comes, God eternally separates the good and evil once again. And here, the good will triumph and evil will be permanently done away with. Now, people don't like to hear that. People say, now, see, then they blame God for that. It's most amazing when we think of it. Here we are, we blame God for the mess up. Then when we hear about the fact He's going to separate eternally the good from the evil, heaven from hell, when He does this, now we blame Him because He's done something else wrong. Now, it couldn't possibly be us it's always God's fault in all this stuff. So, here's the good and the evil between the fall and the judgment. Notice, however, in the Christian worldview, that this period of good and evil is bounded on the left side of the diagram by the fall, on the right side of the diagram by judgment, and therefore we can say that no matter how powerful evil is, it is bracketed. It is limited. It is not free to go wherever it wants to go. 
It's bounded in time and bounded in space. Now, let's forget the Bible for a moment and let's go out and think like an unbeliever. It comes natural. So, let's think like a pagan. And a pagan, unbelieving, says, well, I observe that there's good and evil today. My granddaddy suffered good and evil yesterday. And my children are going to suffer good and evil tomorrow. So, conclusion, there always has been and always will be good and evil mixture. And the classic symbol of this, because the Oriental people actually thought through this a lot better than the Western people, they're much more consistently historically pagan, that's why, the, for example, the yin-yang symbol is right today in the flag of South Korea. That, that is the yin-yang, and that is the black and the white showing that they coexist and they're equal and opposite. That's the yin-yang type thing. Okay, so what this is, is a hopeless mess because it says that good and evil are forever. There's no separation of good from evil in this scheme of things. And there is no origin point of good or evil such that existence itself is inherently evil. That's the unbeliever's position. Now, people don't like that either. But believe me, the people who thought it through, particularly in Oriental religion, know this is true. This is why they want to escape into a nirvana. They would rather commit suicide of the soul and destroy their personal existence because they want to get off this thing. Reincarnation is, is no good. That just brings you back as a bug next time or something. And you have to go through the cycle all over again. So, reincarnation is not good news. Reincarnation is doom. So, all of that to say that we look and we say that the Bible has not only the explanation, but it has the only explanation. Then we came to the flood, and that pertains to what we're trying to talk about in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is thinking in terms of what did Jesus Christ do on the cross? And it's the framework in which you are thinking when you're asking the question, what did Jesus do on the cross? That gives you the right answer or it gives you the wrong answer. It gives you the answer of Anselm or it gives you the answer of Abelard. And the flood leads to the to the idea of judgment salvation. Now look at that. I put a slash between those two nouns. And I did that for a reason. Any child can think about the Noahic flood. People got saved, but what else happened? People got drowned. The two occurred together. You don't have in the scriptures salvation without judgment. Now why is that? Let's think about it. Why is it that every time you get something saved, you also get judgment? We'll go back to the evil diagram again. What do we say? How do you terminate good, this good and evil mixture? How do you get saved out of that? You only get saved out of that by partitioning the good away from the evil. So the act of partitioning saves and it judges. So it's not any incidental that when we study things like the flood that ended the antediluvian generation. It didn't permanently separate good and evil, but it separated that generation. It was an adumbration of things to come. That flood gave us the doctrine of judgment salvation. Now let's think about the cross of Christ. 
if Jesus delivers and saves by that work on the cross, if we're thinking in terms of the Old Testament, we better look around for what's being judged. Something's being judged here in order for there to be saving to take place. Those two works always go together. Then we said the first covenant that's explicit in Scripture gave us again a renewal of the doctrine of God, man, and nature. And then you remember we went on and we came to the call of Abraham and we talked about how he was elect out of all the nations of the earth and Genesis 12. And this is the topic today, call of Abraham. What do we say? Why was Abraham called? What was happening to the human race? They were being corrupted. So God had to create a unique counterculture that would act like a theological greenhouse in which he could bring the seedlings of divine revelation and the, he would have actions that Israel would be involved in down through history, including bringing about this book, this is the product of Abraham, and the Messiah, who is the seed of Abraham. So the call of Abraham was a, was a tremendous moment in history when God reached down and he elected one man. He didn't ask for the Gallup poll on how many people would agree to this guy. He didn't consult with anybody. He didn't ask the angels for a vote. He said, that's my will. Now, you may not like it, but you're a creature and I'm the creator, so tough on you. I call Abraham. So God calls Abraham, and from that we get the doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of faith, all associated with this, this tremendous moment that happened in 2000 B.C., when God called this, this counterculture into existence. And it's always been hated. And this is why even the unbelieving Jew can't, is, is always frustrated. I want to laugh on the radio and TV now, you hear about the Europeans um, don't like Israel. Well, they never liked Israel. They never liked the Jews when they were there. That's why the Zionism got started. It's because the Jews were kept out of all the businesses by the Catholic Church. And so, therefore, the only business they could go into was the one business the church forbade. And what was the business that the church kept forbidding in the Middle Ages? Usury. So where did all the Jews wind up going? Banking. And then they get chewed out for being bankers and money grubbers. Well, where else were they supposed to make their money? Couldn't make the money in anything else because they were discriminated against. So, so here we have the rise of Abraham, and this calls into existence the hatred of the Jew. Ultimately, the hatred of the Jew is really a hatred for God's election. People don't understand all the details, but that's ultimately what the problem is. Then we come to the Exodus, and that pertains to understanding the cross of Christ tonight, because the Exodus, besides the flood, is the next time we have judgment salvation. That's not clear on this, and someday I'm going to redo this so people can see it. Judgment salvation, but the Exodus goes one step beyond the flood. Because the Exodus lets us peer into something more profound about this judging work of God. When God chose to save Israel from Egypt, who got judged? The Egyptians, right? So you didn't have, again, you didn't have salvation without having simultaneous judgment. Now, thinking back to how the judgment took place, 
What was the final judgment that is commemorated to this day in every Orthodox Jewish home? Passover. What's Passover all about? Taking a lamb, killing it, and putting blood on the door. Now, they may not have understood all the deep reasoning behind that, but surely if you were there, you'd see a bloody mess. A lamb was slaughtered. Slaughtered. An animal killed in front of your face. And that blood, you had to take a hyssop, dip into this bloody mess, and go on to your nice front door and go like this on the front door. Now you got dripping blood all over the front door. And if you didn't do it, you got judged. God didn't ask for an approval of the art society about whether this looked nice or not. That's the way he did it. And that shows you that when we start analyzing the work of Christ, we come down solidly on the, on the side of Anselm over against Abelard. Because you remember what we said last time? What, did Anselm, what was Anselm's point when he wrote the book, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man? That Jesus Christ's work is a substitution for, to satisfy God for my sins. It may be inspirational. The, the obedience that Christ manifested going to the cross and, and going through that, that's an inspiration. Yes, it is. But that's not the work of the cross itself. The work of the cross itself in that awful darkness on Golgotha has to do with some strange judging that was going on in order that there might be some saving going on. And the Jesus Christ's work on the cross is judgmental. It is bloody. It is awful. And it's that aspect of the cross that we want to think about. Now, when we went into that, and I'm going to skip the rest of the history until we come down to the Lord Jesus, about a year or so ago, we went through and we went to the, his death. And we talked about the substitutionary blood atonement. Because now, here again, same doctrine. We've seen it in the flood, we've seen it in the exodus, and now we see it on the cross. And we said that each one of these aspects to the Lord Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, are all rejected because of an underlying commitment to an unbelief, unbiblical truth. Or falsehood, I should say. And what is the falsehood? What is the key issue behind this? What, what is the big idea that people have up here screwed up that will prevent them every time from appreciating and understanding the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The one idea. What's the one central basic idea that once it's out of line, and once it's like your car, when, it, when it's out of alignment, you've got a big problem because you can't keep it on the road. This is the idea, if you forget, forgot. The basic idea is what is justice. The idea of justice underlies your ability to understand the cross of Christ. If you cannot think through properly and you have a distorted notion of justice, you will never understand the cross of Christ. Justice, biblically, has a certain content to it. And you can't just sit there and say, well, I think justice is. This is not a, a class about opinions. The only way to get the firm biblical concept of justice is to read the Bible. And ask yourself, as you go through the criminal law codes in the Old Testament, 
as you think those things through, ask yourself whether the justice being shown is a human social thing or whether it's more profoundly rooted in who God is. Now, you go to the Old Testament criminal law codes and you find essentially that justice is always restitutionary. That is, justice must be satisfied. Evil must be corrected. There must be a payment. For example, let's take the criminal code that has to do with theft. In the Old Testament, when somebody stole something, they didn't just throw them in jail. They, would, they laugh at our criminal justice system. They say, well, you know, we, we think, you know, we're, what, 14 centuries, 14, we're 34 centuries ahead. And they say, I think you're 34 centuries behind. Because we solved our criminal co code problem of theft. Well, how'd you solve that? Very simple. We had rules that said if someone stole something from someone, they had to restore it. And not only did they have to restore it, they had to restore it even more to account for the loss of the item. So there was threefold restitution, twofold restitution, fourfold restitution. It's all there in the code. All people have to do is read the Old Testament because nobody reads the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible you know, that's still stuck together. So the point is that in the book of Deuteronomy, book of Leviticus, all those laws are there. That's what those laws are for, so you can read them and understand what their idea of justice was. And you say, well, what if the guy didn't pay payments? Well, then it would be a capital offense. Why is that? Because he defied the court. Defying the court is a capital offense. So he had a little motivation to get out there and pay it back. Now, what do you suppose that would do to society economically? if thieves were required to pay back what they stole. Instead of getting a motel trip for thirty or $40,000 a year for the next five years, so now we've lost 35000 times four, that's how much the incarceration costs, the court costs, and the guy that got lost the property, he gets insurance payments, and the insurance company's got to have some money to get to pay the guy, so where does that do? They take it out of our premiums. And so our premiums go up. Oh, it's a great system we got going. But back in the Old Testament, they had a clearer view of justice. And their idea of justice was that it was restitutionary, that something had to happen, and that the law manifested God's character. And ultimately, they all knew that whereas they could make restitution horizontally to man for things like thievery, they could not make restitution to God. And the lesson was the animal sacrifices. They had to see that sin causes death. And somebody has to pay. And the idea of transferring my sin onto a lamb or an animal is the idea that I can't pay that. I'm helpless. And God has to supply this thing. And, and when he does it, it's a bloody mess. And that's what the cross is. It's a bloody mess. So... Two scriptures that we want to re look at tonight because they're the kernel ideas. We could go through all the scriptures, two dozen of them that we went through back when we talked about this, but tonight I want to take two scriptures. One is John 12, 32. Because this is the one that Abelardians will quote to you that the cross is only 
is only a, a, a nice example, a moral example. John chapter 12, verse 32. Now, I'm showing you this verse because I want you to understand that Anselm and all the honest Bible-believing scholars that followed him that hold to the substitutionary blood atonement of the Lord Jesus are not denying that the cross draws people to God. Of course we believe that. That's what the gospel is. The gospel draws men to Christ. God draws men to God. So, we admit that verse 32 type truth is there. What we're saying is that Abelard is wrong to confine the effect of the cross only to its attractive power to men. It would be like this. Let's go back 34 centuries and we're in Egypt at the time of the Passover. And you are an Orthodox Jew. And you are putting blood in the, your front door. And you, you're doing it because you know that Moses has said that if you don't do that, you're going to lose your firstborn. That's what's going to happen to you. This family, this place is coming down. And I've got to be saved. And the only way I save is put blood on my door. And I, I love my son, and I don't want any death to happen to my family, so I'm going to put blood on my door. But your neighbor comes over, he sees you putting blood on the door, and he says, gee, you know, that looks nice. I think I'll do that. That inspires me. I like the design. And what's wrong with that? He missed the whole point. That's what's wrong with it. So people who say that, oh, gee, I'm so impressed. Jesus was so committed to being a good guy, even when everything went bad. I mean, he just stuck to his guns. And this is the whole point. That interprets like it's just a human martyr. Gee, the cross isn't just a human martyr story. Things are happening on the cross, judiciously. Juridically, I should say. So, that's one verse. The other one is Romans 3. And in Romans 3:26, it is true that the cross answers an ethical dilemma. But it answers it because it really solves the problem, not because it's a sweet idea. In Romans 3:26, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be the just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Now, verse 26 is a very, very important verse. Because verse 26 tells you that the cross reconciles a theological paradox. A paradox that Old Testament saints could not reconcile. They had to live century after century after century with a mystery of how could Yahweh be this holy God that Isaiah saw, that uh, Moses saw on Mount Sinai, this burning holy deity. And how can he have have fellowship with me as sinner. How does he do that? Yeah, I go through the animal sacrifices, but I know that really isn't taking away my sin. 
So how does God have fellowship with me? I don't understand that. And they didn't understand that. And Romans 3.26 tells you how it finally happened. And this is a warning to us. We have paradoxes today. Well, I don't understand how Jesus could do this and that. Someday we'll find out. And just like Old Testament saints, when Romans 3.26 finally dawned on Paul's mind through the Holy Spirit, that resolved a century's theological problem. How can God be just and at the same time justify sinners? Now, this is why verse 26 is so, so important. Let me pick on Islam for a little bit. They're always picking on us. Um, so l- let, me, let me pick on it for a little bit. In Islam, you have apparently a holy God claim made for Allah. Yet, on the other hand, if you ask a Muslim, is there a chance of being going to heaven? And they'd say, well, if your good works outweigh your bad works. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those scale things. And just look at what's been said to you. If your good works outweigh your bad works, your bad works still exist. The record of your bad works still exists. Now, you've made some good works over here, true. But if Allah, that is, if God, comes to you and says, I'm going to accept you with your bad works because of your good works, he is now compromising his holiness and his justice. And that's the dilemma, ethically and morally, of every non-blood atonement religion. That's why outside of the cross of Christ there isn't resolution to the moral problem of how you can have a holy, righteous God and yet have a God who forgives men who are sinners. Now, also note verse 26. Verse 26 wouldn't be a problem if we earned our salvation, would it? Because if we were really earning our salvation, then God isn't, you know, the fact that He justifies us isn't a problem. So, verse 26 insists on two truths. It insists that God is just. He never changes. He is insane. Yesterday, today, and forever, his justice never, ever, ever, ever goes away. That is incomparable with with God. Yet, at the same time, God turns around and justifies wicked people like us. Sinners, like all of us are. And he justifies means he completely justifies. Not partially, completely. And how can that forgiveness happen? Paul says, right in this passage, the only way that happens that satisfies every little jot and tittle is for there to be a blood atonement. Now today, again and again, you hear, oh, your problem is lack of self-esteem. Well, it's been our problem ever since the fall. Of course we don't have any self-esteem because we're all a bunch of goddamn sinners. Now, the point is that we as sinners who are damned by God are also what by God? Justified. Now, doesn't that do something for self-esteem? Self-esteem comes out as a result, as a subjective result of objective truth. People have bad self-esteem because they're aware of their sin. And if we were aware of our atonement in Christ, that no matter what 
what kind of a stinker we are, no matter what other people think about you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are fully acceptable to God right now without 1.24 good, good works. Now that, if you think of it, the problem is we don't think about it, we don't meditate upon it enough, and our souls are weak. We're, we're like spiritual weaklings because we don't feed on this kind of truth. And if we would feed on it and think about it, um, a friend of mine is a, is a real fan of, of Puritan literature, and uh, he's recommended a book that I'm going to get, and if, I, if it turns out as good as he says it is, and I've read parts of it, I'm going to recommend we have it here on the table by a guy by the name of Christopher Love, who was a Puritan. And it is one of the most exquisite books for a Christian saint because it gives you the, how the Puritan um, teachers used to build powerful souls in their people. Those Puritan people, they laughed at because today in, in the college campus, you know, you always have to tear the great people down. And so you always hear criticism about the Puritans. And they, they have to pull these people down because they're, they're intimidated by the presence of the Puritans in our, in our history. Puritans were very, very powerful people spiritually. Uh, they had their weaknesses, but, but they had their strengths too. So, these are the verses in the Bible that talk about this death of Christ. And that's what is going on in the Middle Ages. Now tonight, we're going to go on from dealing with the work of Christ to how we get the benefits of that. So if you'll turn in your notes that we handed out, we talked about the purpose and results of the cross. And in, in so doing, let me also point out on page 94, halfway down or the, the end of that first paragraph where I put italics, don't forget, the Abelardian moral influence theory has recurred again and again and again since the Middle Ages. It is the basis of Unitarianism, Liberalism, and even some Evangelical Revivalism. Whenever Christ is preached as an inspiring example, a demonstration of the love of God, which by itself isn't false, but if that preaching doesn't go on to describe... Now let's go on page 95. How do we receive the benefits of the cross? Now we come into the late Middle Ages. And we call this the reception of salvation by faith. Now I'm a little different here in the way I'm handling church history in that I'm tying the Reformation into the Middle Ages. Usually that's not done. I know that. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm trying to divide it up into three parts, church history. The foundational period, the Middle Ages, up to the Protestant Reformation, including the Protestant Reformation, and then finally, uh, the more recent church history, the last two or three hundred years. So, we're going to finish up the Middle Ages by looking at the next problem that arose. Notice the logical progression. First, the authority of the Bible, then who God is, then the work of God on our behalf, and now the next question is, how do we receive the work of God on our behalf? And with this, we come face to face with the, with the difference between Rome and Protestantism. Because here's where the church split on how we receive the completed work of Jesus Christ. 
Roman Catholic theology does not differ from Protestantism in its conception of the cross of Christ. Roman Catholicism and Protestants both agree as to the nature of the Lord Jesus, that He is both God and man. Now, within the Catholic Church in America today, sadly, you have a lot of liberal Catholics that are Catholic in name only. They don't even know what their own Catholicism is. I'm not talking about liberal American, out-of-it Catholics. I'm talking about your traditional, devoted, personal Roman Catholic person the godly type of Roman Catholic. They would not disagree with us as to the nature of the Lord Jesus. They would not disagree with us on the work on the cross. Where they would come to disagree with us is how that salvation is received. That's where the parting comes. So we want to look at that. And in on page 95, the last full paragraph, where it begins with early church fathers. Early church fathers elaborated on their understanding of sin and grace only as they felt the heat of heresies. In other words, you can go back to the church fathers and you don't get much out of them on this issue because it wasn't being debated. And you can underline that sentence because that's true of every major doctrine. The church just doesn't do it until it gets beaten to do it. And it's like we're a bunch of teenage delinquents here. And we have to be whipped before we get straightened out. And that's what's happened to the church. None of these doctrines ever got straightened out nicely. They all got straightened out in a big fight, controversy, heretics going, and some people getting excommunicated, all the rest of it. All that had to happen every single time one of these doctrinal advances was made. So, the early church fathers elaborated their understanding only as they felt the heat of heresies. In the Eastern churches, Gnosticism denied, among other things, the responsibility of man. The Eastern fathers, that is, the fathers of Greek Orthodoxy, Roman, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox, the Orthodox group, the Eastern fathers, therefore, came down hard on the liberty of volition. And the reason they did was because they were fighting in the East the Gnostics, who kept denying that man had free will. So that's why traditionally, early on, there was an emphasis on volition in the eastern part of the church. That isn't true, by the way, in the western part of the church. Why? Because there was a different doctrinal fight going on. It was a different emphasis to fight against it. The, uh, the, in doing so, however, they avoided delving into the implication of Adam's fall. Western fathers went further in thinking about the implications of the fall. They saw the fall as corrupting man's volition, but not destroying it. By corrupting it, now watch this. They're not arguing that volition is destroyed in, in, in the fall. What they're arguing is that volition has been damaged and perverted so that it operates, and people make choices, the problem is, it always operates in the wrong direction. That's what the Western Fathers believed. They saw the fall as corrupting man's volition, but not destroying it. By corrupting it, they meant that volition after the fall was limited to only evil choices. Left by ourselves, apart from God's grace, we'd choose evil every time. And the reason we would do that isn't because we're trying to be bad people. It's because we're trying to avoid God. A sense of guilt compels us to hide, just like Adam and Eve hid. So, left by ourselves without that wonderful, gracious call, why are you there? You know, talk to me. I'm, I'm talking to you. 
If God didn't do that to us, we would hide in the bushes. We would recapitulate the story of Adam and Eve in our personal lives. So that's what they mean. It's not that we try to be bad. It's not, it's not the picture of, of corrupt will. The picture of corrupt will is just I'm trying to avoid getting with God because I know I'm, you know, I'm a sinner. Okay. Now, the most famous debate. Now we're going to enter, just like we had two men, both began with A, Anselm and Abelard. Now, we're going to go back before that time, actually, because the debate started prior to the Middle Ages, really, and then it got amplified in the Middle Ages. So, it looks like I'm backstepping here in church history for a moment, and I am, I guess. So I want to trace where this whole thing got started, and it kind of fizzled through the Middle Ages and then blew up at the end of the Middle Ages. But I want to tell you where the, the landmine was planted in the road before it blew up. The most famous debate in regards to the will, man's will, and reception of salvation centered around two Christians in the 4th century. One was a British monk who had come to Rome. His name was Pelagius. Notice his birthday, 354. The other was the North African Bishop Augustine. Notice his birthday, 354. So both these guys born the same year. Dr. Hannah, who's the church historian at Dallas Seminary, describes the controversy. So if you'll follow with me. Pelagius opposed the doctrine of Adamic unity and guilt by birth inheritance. The state of birth, as it relates to Adam, is merely that of a tendency to follow bad examples, which, for some reason, we voluntarily emulate. There is no unity in Adam's fall. Each person being born into the same state as Adam before the fall and voluntarily for falling from grace. Now, that's Pelagianism. That's the idea that when you have a child and that little, little thing is nice, cuddly kid before he gets to be a brat, um, a nice, cuddly little kid and you love him and everything's cool and then they appear to start being bad. It doesn't take him. You don't have to teach him to be bad. Isn't that interesting? Go into a parental interview and ask parents if they ever had to teach their kid how to be bad. Now, if you'll notice what Dr. Hannah says, there's a little statement there, I want you to underline it. Notice where he says, a tendency to follow bad examples, which, for some reason, we voluntarily emulate. Just underline, for some reason. We're going to trace that through uh, next week in more detail. You see, the problem is that Pelagianism doesn't explain this universality of sin. What Pelagianism does, it says that that little baby that, that's born, your little baby, is born just like Adam and Eve was created. So, your child recapitulates the story of Genesis 3 in that the child is born to you in a Genesis 2 mode and somehow, you know, it, it gets stuck and, and falls. But the, the fall is recapitulated, so to speak, in the life of your baby, in the life of us when we were babies. So that's Pelagius' teaching. And so this, this leads to, uh, we're going to just follow the statement, follow the statement in the next sentence, that if that's so, and we voluntarily fall from grace, then grace is an assisting gift from God if one chooses to avail oneself of it. 
A corollary of Pelagius' denial of human inability was the assertion that God's election of humankind was dependent upon his knowledge of the actions of the sinner if given a view of God's grace. That's Pelagius' view. Now let's turn to Romans 5. This is the one, this chapter, Romans chapter 5, is historically the passage that Augustine used to go after Pelagius. See, it's nice to know when you study the Bible. It, it really does help you to know some of the historic debates that use the passages you might happen to be teaching or studying. Because then you say, oh, gee, yeah, that's right. This passage, really, I really should understand this because this was the basis of a big debate that went on for 200 years. So, in Romans 12, verse 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now notice this. Death spread to all men, because all men sinned. Well, if you just, you notice that modern translations have a dash after that last word in verse 12, because it's like it's a sentence that just stops. And so if you stopped at the end of verse 12, you'd say, wait a minute, hold it. Adam sinned, sin entered into the world, and it spread to all men because I sinned? How did I sin in Adam? Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin isn't imputed where there is no law. In other words, the law there, verse 13, talking about the Torah, the law of Israel, that a Jew would have thought about. And he says, well, why is God holding me responsible? How can I sin if I don't have the Torah? I'm sinning against the Torah. So, until the law, until Moses gave the law, how could you say all the people died before Moses' time? They didn't know the law. They didn't have the Torah. What, to what were they held that made them die? So verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Notice how he's using physical death, and you could say spiritual death wrapped up in the same package. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. Obvious fact of history. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him to come. So Paul's arguing that because death occurred between Adam and Moses, somehow, if death is a sentence of judgment, then we must have sinned. Methuselah must have sinned. Adam must have sinned. Noah must have sinned. Terah must have sinned. Abraham must have sinned. Isaac must have sinned. Jacob must have sinned. They all died, didn't they? So they were under a death sentence for something. What was it they were under death sentence for? says they, they, they didn't sin, Adam, they didn't eat of the tree of the garden, but nevertheless they're held in death. And so Paul, that's why, verse, back to verse 12, that's his theological statement. Death spread to all men, and it came through Adam. Now, in summary, because we're going to have to break it off here, here's the deal. The debate that Pelagius had with Augustine surrounded this question. How are you and me, how are we related to Adam and the fall? Pelagius said we're not. We're not related to Adam and the fall. 
we, for some reason, we recapitulated, but we didn't sin in Adam. We weren't there. That had nothing to do with us. Augustine said, page 96, we'll conclude with that quote, Augustine argued that by Adam's first sin, in which the entire human race participated, sin came into the world, corrupting every person, both physically and morally. Everyone, being of Adam, is born into the world with a nature that is so corrupted that they can do nothing but sin. Not a nice optimistic note. For Augustine, the need for grace was central. Our disfigured condition is not so much that we are unable to choose Christ. Rather, it is that humanity does not have a desire to know Christ. Absolute inability on the sinner's part necessitates a divine initiative and drawing mercies. Furthermore, since humankind is unable to be aware of God's grace, God could never have determined to save based upon a foreseen response by the sinner. So now you see that early on, in the beginning of the Middle Ages, this debate was simmering. And it went on for centuries underneath the surface because this deal between Pelagius and Augustine really never got settled. It kind of got settled on the surface, but there was a lot underneath all that. And when Luther and Calvin came along, those guys, it was just like lava blew out a volcano because Luther and Calvin had their feet on top of Augustine. And they said, wait a minute. You guys haven't answered Augustine. You're not following his, his argument of Romans 5. So that's what happened when, when we get into this other thing. And we're going to deal then, not next week, we're not meeting next week, week after next week. We're going to deal with how then, if we have sinned in Adam, and we have a corrupt nature in Adam, how then can we be saved? How are the benefits of Christ ever brought to us when we're not even looking for them? And that's, that's the issue of the Reformation. Father, thank you for your patience over time and history. And we are convicted of our own sin as we look upon the church and see that every single time the church has made any doctrinal advance, it's always because we were forced to do it. We were forced because of adversity. We were forced because of circumstances. We were forced because of heretics. It's always an attack of the evil one against us that stimulates us to get our eyes on you. And we are aware ever so much more of our sin tendency and our sin natures. And we thank you for regeneration that gives us the indwelling Christ and the Holy Spirit that empowers that regenerate nature. For without that, we would not be able to take one step in the Christian life. We thank you now for your benefits and for your grace that's shown to us in him. Amen. Yes. By sitting there? Well, then we, we must have a dead spot over there in that area. I'll have to talk to Harvey. Oh, yeah? Because that's right, because in Sunday you're over there. Well, you just have to hunt around, George, and find out the good spots. <laughs> George is hard of hearing, and he has a problem in certain parts of the auditorium where I think I'm talking fine, and he just can't hear it. And uh, believe it or not, we spent hours in here one time with Harvey Wagner and some sound equipment, and I was amazed. Harvey's an expert on sound, and all these little pads you see up on the wall, 
are necessary because without those pads, you, you'd be totally dead in whole rows, believe it or not. Because the sound hits the, hits the wall, bounces back, hits the other one, and the, the sound waves cancel. And you can actually sit in certain places and actually hear nothing. And so those little things are supposed to break up the sound waves, and when it hits the wall, it, it gets crumbled so that it's all out of phase and comes back. Well, evidently, George is telling us that there's some places still where it's canceled out. You're a wave detector. <laughs> Okay, are there any theological questions tonight? Yeah. Debbie. Ah, I was love having you here. Now, the issue of the infant, um, the, um, of course, the biblical passage that most of us go to is David's son, where David says that when he loses his baby son, who is in that state, David says, I'll go to be with him. So, where, so what does that do with the sin? Yeah, what happens to the sin of the infant? And we really don't know, the honest answer is that the benefits of Christ uh, are applied in some way, but how, we don't know. And the basis of that question that Debbie's raised about how then does the finished work of Christ get applied to the infant who doesn't believe, who can't believe, and say presumably uh, arguing from, say, a Roman Catholic perspective, because we must understand here, uh, let me diverge a moment, because this is also true. In Augustine's day, as well as the centuries prior to Augustine, the church made no distinguishment between the act of believing the gospel and being baptized. And what they would do is they would, uh, like I think it's the Didache, has instructions on people who are about to become Christians. And it says that they'll fast and they'll pray and they'll meditate until they are assured of the truth of the gospel and then let them be baptized. And then they speak as though the baptismal regeneration has occurred at that point where they actually are being baptized. And this has caused a lot of confusion down through the centuries. And if that were the case, you can see why the church started to drift toward uh, an infant baptism type thing, and why today, uh, in Roman Catholicism, we'll see in the notes, in fact, the notes that you have right now, the claim is made that infant baptism removes original sin. It forgives past sin, but not future sin. In other words, it's like I said last week, the, this wonderful, finished, complete work of Christ is sort of dribbled out 
over a period of time in pieces and chunks. It's not delivered in a package. It's, it's dribbled. It's dribbled down through the sacraments. And um, so in that case, if you held the Roman Catholic position, the issue of what happens to the infants would be solely up to do whether they were baptized or not. This is why there's a, a, a dedicated, devoted Roman Catholic households. There's such an emphasis on getting the infant baptized, lest something happen. Um, so that's, that's where that's coming from. Um, but as far as the, obviously, somehow the benefits of Christ are applied, we have no idea how. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. I think children. Yeah. But you know, I think that we would be surprised at how early some children believe. No. But that's because they're infants. Yeah. So I guess if salvation is a one package thing, okay, then that three year old who is responding to the grace of God has the whole package. Mm-hmm. That's right. Isn't a child that young influenced by sure. friends or even when they're ten and eleven, if they're like friends gonna get baptized, I'm gonna go to Oh yeah. So they really ends up not gonna be a true salvation. Well sometimes that's right. Sometimes, Lynn has pointed out, the problem you have, too, with children is they're tremendously susceptible to peer pressure and parental pressure. And it's a real fine line as a parent. Uh, you want your children to believe. You want to explain the gospel, answer their questions, and groom them, as it were. But yet, on the other hand, you certainly don't want to have them profess to believe before they're ready in their heart to believe out of deference to you. And that's where it's, it's delicate parenting, parenting that, that has to handle that problem. But the point we have to say is that justification, and you'll see it in the notes, um, the word, let's get the word straight, the word to justify does not mean the same in Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And that has led to more misunderstanding between Roman, Protestants and Catholics. Because they both, both are insisting that, that Roman Catholic is, is affirming that you are justified by faith. They believe that, that you're justified by faith. But what they mean by the word justify isn't what we mean by the word justify. So let's define those two terms. We'll do it next, the week after next, but extra, extra for the Q&A people. Um, the Roman Catholic idea of justification 
is a process. And it, it, they use the word, their theologians use the word as we would use the word sanctification. So they're using it almost as a synonym for sanctification. They would say we are being justified by faith. Okay? But when the Protestant Reformation occurred, Luther and Calvin, when they meant justification, they meant it as a package deal. That a person was justified and saved from past sins, present sins, and future sins. Period. What happened then was, that you can well imagine, that the early Protestants were attacked viciously by the Roman Catholics for saying that because they said, once you guarantee that future sins are forgiven, what's going to happen? People are going to fall back and you are giving them a license to licentiousness. Now that has always been the argument and that, that unfortunately is circulating in today's evangelical circles. That you dare not teach real biblical justification because if you do, people are going to be stimulated to, to lead cruddy lives. Now, that would be true if if justification were understood to mean a cheap salvation. But that gets back to the fact that, and this is where we have the cart before the horse, there are evangelicals today who are worried about this problem. That if you really teach justification by faith as Luther and Calvin taught it, as Romans 5.1 teaches about it, as Paul taught about it, you're going to have people that just take advantage of it. So you better not teach it that way. Got to keep people in fear. So you create all these little theological things to, to keep people in fear that they're not saved yet. Um, the problem with that is it's not a problem with understanding the work of Christ. That problem comes about by misunderstanding who God is. Think of the sequence we've looked here. What is it? The authority of the Bible, the nature of God, the nature of Christ the work of Christ, and then how it benefits from it. Well, if we teach justification as a full package, that should not logically lead to licentiousness if we've understood who God is, who Christ is, and what the work of Christ was on the cross. So you don't solve the problem by putting theological doubts in people's minds. Gee, you're really not saved. If they are saved, you don't do that you go back to who God is, who Christ is, and emphasize the doctrine that preceded that. So, and so what happened was, historically, the Catholic Church came back against the Protestants. And you can read it, it's called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, you pick up a book on church history and you can read it for yourself. The Council of Trent is the council when the Roman Catholic Church took on its present form. It's ironic, but what we call the Roman Catholic Church really didn't exist prior to Trent. Yeah, we did in parts and pieces. But the real, the real what we identify as Roman Catholic theology today is largely the result of two councils. One, the Council of Trent, right after the Protestant Reformation, and the other, Vatican I, in the 19th century. Because in Vatican I in the 19th century, that was when the Pope was declared infallible. It wasn't until Vatican I that Mary was considered to be immaculate conception and the Assumption. That all started in the 19th century. 
Catholics living in the 1700s didn't believe in papal infallibility. Didn't even talk about it. That's a late, late arrival. Of course, they'll say, well, it was part of the oral tradition. Well, find it in the writings. Point is that you had the Council of Trent come back against the Protestants, and that's where they nailed Luther and Calvin. They said, you guys have let loose licentious living. You have taught a justification by faith that is a license to sin. And ironically, that's exactly the objection that Paul faced. Because in Romans and Galatians, what does he say? He says, in Romans he says, if I am allowing, uh, as he put it, if I'm allowing uh, evil to come by preaching good, then it's good or something. He uses that argument. He's being sarcastic because he's facing the same thing Luther faced. He's facing the same thing that uh, Calvin faced. It's always the objection that you can't teach justification by faith or you're going to let some horrible thing out of the bag or something. So you have to keep everybody fearful. The problem with that approach is that you take a person who is struggling with an ongoing sin problem, and it works exactly backwards. If they can't understand that they are totally and completely forgiven by the grace of God, they're never going to trust God to deal with the problem because they won't have the trust that he's going to do help them. If I'm sitting here and I am not convinced that God accepts me, how am I supposed to deal with my sin problem? Excuse me. But it's backwards. So it's precisely teaching a full-orbed justification that solves the sin problem because it leads to a motivation. The motivation is, God accepts me. Now I can come to Him. I'm not ashamed to come to Him with my problem. But if I'm ashamed to come to Him, I'm not going to come to Him. I'm going to hide in the bushes with Adam and Eve. So I've got to have the assurance that I'm acceptable with God before I can work on some of these sin issues. And it's going to take time to work some of those out. And sometimes I'm going to lose. Sometimes I'm going to fall backwards. But that doesn't make me not a Christian. Oh, you don't have saving faith because I've got a problem. That's true. You can have false profession. But false profession doesn't come about because of a bad doctrine justification. False profession comes out about peer pressure. That's one source of it incomplete knowledge of who and what God is, a total misunderstanding of what the cross is all about. And if you, if you see what passes for evangelical work, I'm not talking about the Bible, good Bible teachers and stuff, but there's a lot of stuff on the radio and TV that apparently is evangelical. Now you just listen to the appeals. Just listen to the content of the appeals. Now you tell me that the objective work of Christ and the cross is being taught there, Come to Christ and he'll heal your problems. I don't see that in the Bible. I mean, yeah, he does that, but that's not what the cross is all about. So, you guys now, you've had a little bit of exposure to church history with the Abelard Anselm issue. So now you can mentally put it, okay, what we're hearing here is just that it, you know, the cross is a nice thing, it's you know, motivational, that sort of thing. But, but that's not going to cut it. Because you see, the problem is that we're sinners. The problem is that we have a problem with God. It's not a problem with other people. Yeah, we have problems with other people, but that's a result. My problem is I've got a problem with God, and I've got to solve the problem. He's got to solve them because I can't. 
And the only way he solves it is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And that's the, hand, that's the hand you have. Now, we can talk about the forces of evil, the demonic. We can talk about Satan. We can talk about sin habits. We can talk about this. and We can talk about that. But folks, all that is nothing compared to the finished work of Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross. That's the center of the gospel. Nothing else is. All the rest of it is peripheral. And it was that that Luther and Calvin, thankfully, by God's grace, resurrected once again into the church. And they did it in a very clear, very dogmatic, and very controversial way. Because remember, what have we learned from church history? That we learn nothing from church history unless we get pressured into it. Unless the church gets beaten, persecuted, or attacked by a heretic. Then we're, okay, now now you've got my attention, God, and now I'm going to learn. But it's only as we get hurt and shoved around do we ever learn. It's comforting because that's the way I am and I like to see the fact that everybody else in church history is the same way. Um, and I think we all, you know, be honest, that's how we all learn. College of Hard Knocks, most efficient curriculum ever devised. So, so anyhow, that whole issue of the Protestant Reformation is contingent on these other things and that's why I've been so careful to lead you up the path here. I've shown you the debate over the authority of Scripture, the debate over the nature of God, the debate over the finished work of Christ, and now how do we receive it. And then once we get done with that, we're going to go on to the modern period when we deal with, and what is the church? Is the church an institution? What's the church's mission? To redo what Israel did? And then finally, eschatology. And today, we're living probably in the tail end of church history because the last great doctrinal area is being debated right now. And that is the return of Christ. And how fitting that that doctrine be debated prior to his imminent return. That the church, before Christ comes back, the church will have a clear understanding. We're going to have a big bloody fight, knock down, drag out, over eschatology. And, and it's coming. It's, it's here. And we have people now in evangelical circles that say Christ came in 70 A.D. And these aren't liberals now. These are our own so-called reform people teaching this kind of stuff. And so, I mean, here we are. Now we, now we can't get straight into who Jesus is and his coming. I mean, I thought that was pretty clear in Scripture myself. But, you know, I mean, we've got guys with PhDs now in evangelical circles denying that the book of Revelation is future. It's all past. Happened in 70 A.D. Hello? But, but that's the debate. And that's because I personally believe that the world is setting up for the, for the return of Christ. So that's going to be the end of church history. And we will have gone through from the Bible, the authority, all the way down to the hardest doctrine of all, which is eschatology. Okay? Well, we're going to have to break it off tonight. And one week from, a week from, two weeks from tonight, we'll meet. Okay?